Heather O'Neill is a novelist, short story writer, and essayist. Her work, which includes Lullabies for Little Criminals, The Girl Who Was Saturday Night, Daydreams of Angels, and The Lonely Hearts Hotel, has been shortlisted for the Governor General's Award for Fiction, the Orange Prize for Fiction, and the Scotiabank Giller Prize, and has won CBC Canada Reads, the Paragraph Hugh McClellan Prize for Fiction, and the Danuta Gleed Literary Award. She lives in Montreal, where we currently are, to talk about, among other things, Wisdom in Nonsense, the Canadian Literature Centre Chrysal Lecture Series. Yes. And you gave that in 2017? Yeah, it was last year. Welcome to the Bibliophile. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Just like to work my way through this uh, with you, if I could. Okay. But first, hating your life is an acceptance of your circumstance. To love your life is an act of rebellion, a declaration of its worth. That's you. Yes. So, are you actively trying to love your life because you hate it? No, I think um, I think that I do love my life, and I've always had a sense of loving it, even though um, I feel that through my childhood and my life, I've had um, some like sort of exceptional obstacles to overcome, and I've been in positions where um, people would objectively look at my life and say it's a terrible, it's a terrible one. But um, I just, I think even as a child, I was working against that because I had such a sense of, I guess almost naturally, like I had this natural inclination towards happiness or knew what it was and my sense of wonder and um, being amazed at certain things was so dear to me. And whenever I was amazed by something, I just felt inherently that that was part of me too, because I was able to observe it. So I had um, I had a love of life, even though so, and I was which I was able to distinctly separate myself from the circumstances I was living in. That's because you were made to feel important, right? Partly. Um, that you had self worth, or is that just made up? Is that a lie? Because you do say that in your lecture, I think. I do. I don't... Um, I mean, it's one's relationship with one's parent. It's like a complicated one. <laughs> <laughs> Telling me. <laughs> and um, it's interesting because you might sometimes have the impression that when someone dies, it's the end of your relationship. But then it's um, what I found kind of interesting with my father and I was that it was such an evolving relationship too and I'm still there are times when I when we're getting along really well and there's times when I'm just furious with him and so it's we're just going we go through stages together and it's like even a more sort of complicated relationship now that he's passed away because it all kind of exists in the realm of the spirit and then I just go back to different times so you can't vent your anger on him now well you can but he won't respond. 
But maybe in a way because, um, I mean, I feel, I suppose in a lot of ways, I think because um, it was just me and my dad that I felt I was also so responsible for him being happy. And then I had like, um, like some kids do, like you end up having to parent a bit yourself. So I think the burden of, and I was always kind of preoccupied and worried that he would be sad. So I think that one now, it's almost like I can have a more honest appraisal of things that went on in my childhood. Who knows? I'm, I'm also just having like a, this introspective year because I started um, writing a memoir and then it's brought up a lot of complicated things. So it's kind of, it's funny because nonfiction is so much harder in a way to pin down than fiction because fiction naturally has its own like parameters and like you fiction does, doesn't have parameters. No, you would think, but it's like if you create something in fiction, that becomes the truth. Whether I mean, you can play with the narrative, but you kind of are creating the physics of it. Whereas the truth and what actually happened, you have sort of no control over. You, it's very difficult to access or have some claim over something that happened in the real world because there's other people who have. Comp- who are also witness to it, who would have di- completely different narratives, and even your own experience doesn't quite belong to you in the same way. It's like a tricky, fickle thing, and I'm like, I wanna just like pin you down the way I can pin down fiction. And um, it's hard, and it's always like in fiction, you create the tone and what you want it to say, but then with, with real life, it, um, it defies you. That uh, puts me in mind of uh, Hamlet's ghost, the f- the father, the ghost. Now, if he'd seen it on his own, mm-hmm. then you might say he might say it was a figment of his imagination. But there's uh, Horatio and a, another guy I can't mm-hmm. remember his name. But the point is, at least in the reader's mind, it isn't just his own imagination because there've been other people that have are there that saw it as well. Mm. Yeah, there's another interesting thing about um, if you're writing or, I mean, speaking about anything in one's life that's abusive, one usually doesn't have witnesses. So, and I mean, it's come, up, it's come up lately in like the Me Too movement, but it also comes up in, in um, writing or anyone who's experienced abuse is you are actually writing in a place where you have no other witnesses and you're inviting the reader in to be a witness and um, you're asking that the reader like believe you. And yeah, I mean, that's just so uh, an issue. Just like with people with victims in general is that I you was have just about to say that you have no, you want people to believe you. Yeah. Because you have no witness and you're like, you're just going to have right. to believe Hamlet without all his friends. It's a he said, she said situation. Yeah. So who do you believe? And you can't really, t- well, if you want to take it to the legal courts, they tend to rule against women or victims. Well, the legal system is, has, is created to protect those in power in, mm. in all circumstances. It's created to keep the status quo. Mm. So there's um, 
naturally for women there's there's sort of no um, recourse to justice in it but that's why there's starting to be these new movements wherein women find justice and which um, people are saying particularly men that it's that these are unjust and mobs and mm-hmm. um, but it's not it's it's a it's a form of women being heard but yeah because you can't get heard through the the legal structure which is and if you can't get heard there then yeah and the legal structure is such that it limits your voice and it tells you how to speak and when you can speak and also it also gets gets guilty people off the hook it seems yeah yeah it totally protects them whereas this is um sort of a movement that was created by women in a way that directly impacts um, perpetrators. Mm. I think the problem is, though, that uh, now we're getting way, uh, way, uh, way <laughs> out of our not depth, but uh, <laughs> uh, the, the original intent of our discussion. But it's obviously very interesting, and it's it's part of Canlit like almost nothing else right now. Mm-hmm. So uh, I heard you talk on the radio some months ago about about uh, Concordia and. Mm-hmm. Uh, I assume that might have something to do with your memoir and bringing all this up. Not, not really. That was it. Was actually interesting. Like I had not, um, I had not thought really about the what had happened to me at Concordia, and it wasn't really um, part of my memoir or something that I was working on. But mm. then I had heard. Um, I knew that there were some young women who were coming forward, and they were um, being threatened with litigation and just um, being called liars. And then at that point, I felt, um, having been through it myself, that I really, um, I had a responsibility mm-hmm. towards these younger women. To support them. Yeah, and yeah. I was like, I can't, I I can't. And it's not something that I wanted to do or talk about. Because no. it's all, it just makes you feel miserable and there's certainly, you expose yourself. But... Um, I was like, I can't, like, I, I can't in any good conscience or write about things I do and then not come forward yeah. and support, like, these young women mm-hmm. in any way that I can. So it was just a moment when I was like, okay, I'm there for you guys. Because I always felt, too, that um, when I reflect back on things that had happened, I wonder, like, okay, well, where were the older women in these circumstances who could have been, like, policing or monitor or just been there for the for me at you know at all so nothing's really come of that to this point i suppose it's all what bogged bogged down in legal yeah i think things have come of it though things have come of it because individuals are no longer working there you mean yeah and i think there's um and i think for the students who are there now it's been um they've been made aware of how these situations are an abuse of power and that's mm-hmm. also what I wanted to show from like sometimes it's, it's harder when you're younger and you're in it but mm-hmm. then from um, the perspective of being older and I look back on it and I see just how blatantly it was an abuse of power and how it just kind of um, really undercut my sense of self-esteem and self-worth and how that was um so like pernicious and how it could and you know and people mock it and pretend it's not like um significant that sort of um 
constant like harassment that goes on, but they don't realize the degree to which it can affect um, a young woman's education and her attempt to kind of move forward in that world. So um, I think by lot, I mean, when I was describing it, I was just very being um, factual of like, this is what happened, this is how it made me feel, and this is kind of the after effects. So I just wanted um, that voice to be out there for um, students and young women or young men or whatever, and for them to know that they have a right, if they feel upset by this, to know that it is, um, they are being wronged and they have a legitimate um, beef, whether it's not like written into the actual like school regulations or not. It's like, we don't, we're at a moment when we can challenge laws even if they exist. Like even if it's in the Concordia, like um, the rules that professors and students can sleep together, that doesn't mean that it's right mm-hmm. or yeah. acceptable in any sort of um, literary community. So thanks to this movement, students can voice their concerns or complaints without fear of being blacklisted or un- going unpublished. Is that what you think? No, I think, um, I mean, the problem is you, there's, you're still always going to be afraid of litigation, but I think it's like, I think it just, yeah, it polices the actions a little more and it mm. makes um, the professors think twice. And I think also in this climate, I think you would have a lot more difficulty as a professor moving up with that sort of behavior, whereas before it was condoned. So, I think. I mean, the the thing is too, though, it is open to abuse. That's, I think, one of the concerns from the from the male perspective, is that their reputations will get completely shattered if uh, if someone decides to accuse them of something. I mean, that's the male concern, I guess. Yeah, but it, it's um, it happens so rarely. It's an irrational concern, and it's just like um. Women usually, when they come forward, it's the toll, the psychological toll that takes on Mm -hmm. you. Mm -hmm. Like, nobody comes forward unless um, they have a legitimate um, complaint. Do you know what I mean? Like, if you're going to say, like, maybe in, in like, 1,000 cases, one woman's going to be a liar, therefore we should not believe women at all, it becomes absurd. But the terror that, that men are feeling is a good thing because everybody we tried asking them nicely for decades and there was no change mm. so we had to um, instill a little terror okay <laughs> <laughs> speaking of lying um, or telling the truth mm-hmm. novelists poets lie to tell the truth they're editing the real world aren't you is that, that, is that something you're saying? Um, I'm pretty sure I picked that out of All right, are you wisdom and nonsense. <laughs> I'm uh, oh paraphrasing God. you. Oh, okay. Um, I'm agreeing with you and paraphrasing you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's definitely um, a process of, of editing. I mean, I, I think we all, we do that in real life too. We create like anecdotes and there's... Um, 
there's a way in which we just naturally edit everything we say in order to create a certain meaning with it. I think that that's and our memory is not yeah. the best. No. And again, this getting back to me too. I think that's one of the problems is in a court your your stories mm. even if they are true the details may not be accurate and that's where you get into trouble hmm. yeah memory is funny too because we edit um, we also edit our own story in order to kind of have our lives be the kind of novel that we want it to be mm-hmm. and um one reason I'm sort of glad I don't have like a lot of photographs from when I was a teenager because I just prefer my own sort of like I've created um, of those teenage years like such a beautiful strange dark but um, like Narnia like memory of it that sort of and I'm glad there's kind of no actual documentation. But what's interesting now with like young people is because with selfies and stuff, they can create, they're just basically creating their own photographs. So they're sort of editing and making their life into a narrative as they go along. So I'm just glad there's none of those sort of um, <laughs> terrible old snapshots yeah, with red right. eyes. I'm like, how does this capture that magnificent world? Must be me in some awkward pose mm. in a t-shirt. But yeah, we, we kind of retroactively make a story out of our lives, I think. Oh, so that's, that's why that happened. It's because I was on my way to this. Yeah, and then sometimes when something like kind of monumental happens and we go back and we completely like reorder it and re-edit it, and then um, that's when people have an existential crisis because you're like, oh my God, I have to like, like edit this book so much. I was mm. like, yeah, and people are going through divorces, and they're going back, and they're like, no, that person wasn't important. It's not a main character, not a main character. Um, yeah, it's like storytelling in the way, like our, I mean, it's just the natural part, the way that our, our minds work within the context of stories. So, and what did I say? that? Well, I said that you said, uh, a novelist lies to tell the truth. And edits the real world. Yeah, I know. I know that feeling too because sometimes it's also um, we're trying to capture in a way like feelings that you had or a reaction, and sometimes actually telling the event doesn't somehow doesn't capture the psychic impact of it. So the actual way to to communicate the psychic impact would be to create. Like, um, you know, like you're getting your head eaten off by a dragon or something. And then because that would more accurately reflect the state of your heart or something. You need something that kind of momentous to to explain that that's... Exactly. This was really, really painful or... Yeah. Or this was really exciting or whatever. Yeah, and a lot of times, too, um, I keep getting back to, like, abuse and stuff, but, like, with childhood... um, Abuse is interesting, too, because when it happens, one doesn't have the language or even, like, the linguistic sort of our logical structures we're in to capture or describe what happened or to make it into a narrative. So you've experienced this abuse, but it's also been perpetrated on someone who's living in a time where you're still in a metaphorical world. So then 
when one creates fiction, it's through um, this shattered world where you have to describe the abuse in the language wherein it happened. Mm -hmm. So if you were abused as like a seven-year-old, then if you want real access to that abuse, it's created in your memory of it and the way it's stored in your brain is through um, very like childlike imagery. Mm-hmm. So, and a lot of times... You have to kind of go back to that period in your life. Yeah, and there, but there... With your it, mind. And it, but it won't, you won't have access to it through logical language. Mm-hmm. And I think... Mm-hmm. Um, so, and I do think that there's a lot of... Because um, I've spoken to people who are victims of abuse and myself, and it's like there is a certain... Like there's a difficulty of articulating it. And you, yeah. So, um, because partly it happened when you were young, so you didn't have the vocabulary, but also partly what? Because the pain kind of it's the horror of keep, it that keep ref- you away from it. Yeah, mm. I mean because like like words always contain things, and the horror of it like just kind of refuses to be mm-hmm. contained. And I think um, <laughs> yeah, so a lot of people will. A lot of fiction writers will, you know, move into science fiction or these completely magical, radical worlds wherein they can somehow um, kind of harness the the horror of what happened without... Because it almost seems... I don't know what it is. Like, I don't... I mean, it's something I'm exploring, so I don't know if it's why it is after abuse you develop, like, mutism sometimes where you just can't even speak. Like uh, Maya Angelou. Yeah, it's like a definite experience, and you just, um, it becomes very difficult to speak anymore, and I wonder, I don't know if it's because one feels after those moments that language would, like, trivializes what happened, or somehow language is of the world, and you're, and you can't rely on it anymore, because it's so, it's so part of the powers that be. Mm -hmm. And And as you say, it's so logical, too. Yeah. Yeah. You have a great line here, and I'm, I'm going to quote this one directly. Lying is telling the truth in a, me- in a metaphorical way. Yeah. Which, as I say, it's, uh, I mean, it, that's, that's humorous, but in the real world, lying isn't humorous at all. Mm. It causes relationships to break, and if it's serious enough and has to do with money, you get thrown in jail. I suppose, like it, that's more um, lying in order to deceive. So I, I see that more as like deception. Lying, like I think when I was talking about that line, I was talk, talking about how sometimes, funny because I was talking in the context of my father who would just um, lie all the time, but it would be more that it was a lie because the lies were creating the sort of person that he wanted to be. Mm-hmm. that the world he kind of wished we were living in. So I think some, and sometimes when people lie about something, it's just, they're just presenting their wish to you and what they wish was their reality. Yeah. So, like the way he wrote uh, blank checks to you. Yeah. Big ones. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. So in some cases, um, I'm more forgiving of lying when it comes from a place of like loss and you're trying to kind of elevate yourself for a person and for that person to love you more. Mm-hmm. And it's just like you just don't have the world. Or to show you world. love too. 
Yeah. yeah. It's just like you don't, it's almost like I don't have everything that I want to give you because I think you're so worthy that I just, mm. I would give you everything and I would be a much better person because you deserve a much better person than me. So I'm forgiving of that kind of lying. I think it's in sort of in the realm of um, storytelling. But yeah, deception, that that is a, an attempt to steal other people's worlds and to um, limit them. And, and it's like a form, that's a, that's a terrible narcissism too, because you're um, assuming that you have some sort of right over their lives. So yeah, that's more like an act of like selfishness and hatred. Whereas the other one I was talking about is more an act of, um, it's an act of sheer folly because you're going to be found out anyways mm, <laughs> you yeah. with your big tall tales but um he wanted you to be treated or to feel like you were the daughter of a philosophy professor rather than a janitor yeah so he would always um yeah like when i applied for schools or when people would ask he asked me what my father did he would always tell them to say that he was um a philosophy professor and see and that was a strange thing because that lie um it actually went a long way for us because uh, it did cause people who believe that, like adults, to treat me differently. Mm-hmm. And it mm-hmm. did give me a sense in the world of um, what he would be um, kind of the appropriate, an appropriate kind of job that one could be proud of. And it also forced me somehow to act or to think of myself as. Um, the daughter of a philosophy professor, even though I was in, not entirely sure what philosophy was, but we just had this idea that it was um, <laughs> somehow in the in the sounded smart. Yeah, and yeah. that we would be um, very classy people. So it did give me this sense of like, I mean, going back to Hamlet, like if you pretend to be mad long enough, are you actually mad? And it's like if you go about pretending to be. Um, philosophers and children of philosophers after time is it not are you not actually Mm -hmm. philosophers and children of philosophers so um and what is the intrinsic difference actually Mm. of a child of a professor of philosopher and one of a janitor so and um yeah and if you and then you just kind of realize all these things are sort of a lot of them are shallow and come from how life is is um especially for children. It's so much about circumstance, so. People who want you to believe that class is genetic, those kind of people, and that you are less of a person than them. Yeah. Yeah, and I def, um It's funny, too, because my dad was very clear that, like, if, when people know your class, they will treat you um, differently, so... But then as an adult, I became... Um, a writer, of course, and then it's just that sort of awareness of class just became really important to my writing. But um, how's that? I think because I, I just as an adult, as I think most people, if I think that entry into fiction is usually some sort of uh, like radicalization and awareness that you're in a system which is sort of structured to keep you down. And um, as a child, I didn't quite realize that. But then uh, um, as an adult, I realized just how much having been raised poor 
affected the way the world treated me and how difficult things would be, um, just even moving into the adult world and what was expected of me and where the roles that I was supposed to like, assume to fill. But yeah, there's definitely a sense. There's definitely a sense of entitlement from people who were born with a little more that and they're that this is their right and they're somehow um more special people i think that's the reason that you got out of your the poverty i think is because you believed and everyone is special but you really Mm -hmm. your father helped you to believe that and that's the most important that you're loved and made to feel special that's rich yeah he did give me a sense of like um almost like you're better than him right yeah he i mean he somehow yeah he kind of like cultivated me to be like a little bit of a snob and it was very funny in that sort of <laughs> environment we were living in yeah but um he was just very much like constantly like that i was like smarter than the other kids that i was like better like i was like the sort of like best shiniest kid in mm. the entire neighborhood well, you're his, had to live his up daughter to, yeah. of course you're super <laughs> smart yeah i tell my daughter that all the time <laughs> so um yeah and that was like a a wonderful thing that he did like he did give me a sense that i was destined to like for some sort of glory mm. even though i mean he had no idea what glory actually looked like but he was like you're destined for it like go get it and you can tell me what it is were you able to tell him? Yeah, I mean... Because he lived... When did he die? He just he died in 2015. Okay. So, yeah. And your first book of poetry was written in 1998, or at least published in 1998. Yeah, was it 98 or 99? I forget. It says 98 in here. Yeah, I guess it was 98. But you can't believe everything you read. <laughs> Well, let's uh, let's now finally get around to wisdom and nonsense. This is the uh, lecture that you gave last year. Uh, we touched on a number of things, but I'm going to just go through it uh, a little bit more methodically. This is uh, the first lesson. Uh, you not you never never keep a, a, a diary. I loved the feeling of chronicling my daily adventures in a black journal. It made the events of my life seem. Here's those two important were important and worthy of a novel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's funny. You pretty well ignore all this advice, right? Yeah. <laughs> Which um, I suppose is typical of a <laughs> of a child. Yeah. Right. And if, and he said that it was a terrible habit because everything that one wrote down in a diary was ultimately used against a person in court. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, I'll skip the tuba lesson. Yeah, and here's uh, you're you're renowned for your metaphors. Mm-hmm. Is that because your dad was great at metaphors or stories about, or not? You just came naturally to that. Yeah, I'm gonna take ownership for that one. Okay, good. You're looking at the uh, photocopy machine, and the light of the machine moved back and forth as though it was the worthy. Aurora Borealis. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's got that kind of phosphorescent green, right? Mm-hmm. This is a theme, uh, and that's being alone, loneliness. And 
in this lesson, never share your scientific research. <laughs> you say that being betrayed was better than being alone. Hmm. I think it, when I was writing that lecture, I mean, the interesting thing about any piece of writing is it kind of reflects a bit of what's happening exactly at the moment you're writing. So I think I was interested really in loneliness as the time, at the time I was writing that and the idea of um, being alone. And because I guess I've always kind of liked being alone more than most people do. Mm. And it took me like a, a while to realize that was like an acceptable stance in life. Because you're just always kind of told to like go out and find the people. And then I was like, but I don't think I like the people. Like, I mean, there's so, there's this solitariness that um, I do really like. But you're constantly throughout your life told it's like um, a dangerous thing that will kill you off. So, I don't know. I'm just interested about like loneliness and the way, but then it's also there's a strange thing about loneliness because if you spend too much time alone, then the then you grow into this kind of it becomes impossible to communicate and you become this strange sort of um, like Samuel Beckett, like Harold Pinter kind of weird character. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. It's interesting. Kind of antisocial and it becomes difficult to communicate in a strange way. So it's. Uh... I'm not quite sure here. So you're, obviously you're sure that it's better to be on your own than to be in an abusive relationship. Oh, yes. But a lot of people will stay in a relationship yeah. because they fear being on their own. Yeah, it's one of the most, I think it's uh, one of the most terrifying things for people. Like mm -hmm. I was saying, it's like, I mean, I, I wonder the degree to which we're taught that, but yeah, the way society is kind of created now with the sort of... Um, I feel like the idea of love has even replaced religion and it's just people are taught from all movies and culture that you're to look for love and then the idea and nobody knows what happens if this love doesn't exist even though it's I mean romantic love is always it's a, a fickle crazy thing but um, typically ends in tragedy yeah but we're not taught what happens after happily ever after or what um because we're being lied women. to yeah we're not even shown like what it would be like to be a single woman so it's like and the, there's lots of novels that reflect that now anyway yeah there's starting to be there's starting to be a glut of them because i think there's just like there was that um terror and i think a lot of women lived through it where they were just like um because you get afraid of the unknown yeah. So in the, yeah, in the past few years, there've been books about um, single women and yeah, just women on their own and like women outside of relationships. And I think um, that's kind of wonderful. And also because women are are becoming like so independent that there's no need, actually, like um, financially, to stay in an abusive relationship, which was um, in the past you were just stuck in one. So mm -hmm. now it's like you can. You can leave unhappy relationships, so then and live on your own. So there's there was like this need for like, well, what does that look like? Looks pretty great. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of looks, when he rode the the bus home with me in his arms, 
he put a blanket over my head so as not to shock anyone. Yeah. Accept that you're ugly and move on. But, or maybe you're compensating here, in your book of poetry way back when, mm. you make a poem, there's a very good poem in here about giving birth, uh, called All That Glitters Is Not a Gutter, in which you you talk about the the doctor saying that your daughter was as here's another one cute as a tennis ball. <laughs> so you tell your daughter she's as cute as a tennis ball a lot. <laughs> she was very cute. It's true. Um, but you certainly were too. <laughs> I'm sure I was. I don't know why my dad was like. Um, what he was getting at there? Yeah. Okay. It's funny because that's a like um, because when I have done the lecture, I've had. Um, how, many, how many times have you done the lecture? Well, I did it like the first time, and then I I read it like at a couple other places, and there have been a lot of um, women who have come up and they've been like concerned about that. That my dad used to tell me I was like ugly, <laughs> and <laughs> but it was a kind of a, a a funny kind of accusation. He didn't mean it, I guess. I guess or did he? Did. Who knows? Babies, babies, some babies, some babies are, are dreadfully ugly. ugly. Yeah. yeah so, um, In fact, I just saw he's now 24, 25. Mm -hmm. Handsome as all get up. Ugliest baby I've ever seen in my life. Yeah. I you know, like, as my, he said, like, my mother started to cry and then because he kept going on how ugly I was. And then he was like, she was like, you don't love the baby. And he's like, yes. I love the baby. I just find the baby ugly. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. You can love ugly things. Yeah, I've been interested in the That's idea. That's evolved, in fact. Yeah, because I'm interested in the idea of ugliness, too, because I've been reading a lot of um, Violette Leduc, who um, considered herself unattractive and just that sort of, and the kind of rawness of... Um, claiming and celebrating like a body that's not conventionally attractive so you like the idea of being unique I'm really not into this whole except like conventional standards of beauty and there's people um, who through yeah their uniqueness um, who are not conventionally attractive but the way they speak and the way they're animated just makes them so incredibly beautiful to me and that I find um, a much more interesting kind of beauty. That explains John Paul Sartre. He was really ugly mm. and he got laid all the time. Yeah. <laughs> Yes. Do you think you might have slept with John Paul Sartre? Me? Yeah. No, never. Um, you, you, you take this idea of yours to a certain point, but not that far. Well, it has nothing to do with um, sexuality. But a physical appearance and sexuality are pretty closely connected. Or can be. Often are. Yeah, but I mean, we move in the world and we meet so many people that... Um, so I think like the romantic relationship is over exaggerated. So I was thinking more like um, with women that I find beautiful. Who aren't conventionally beautiful. Who aren't conventionally beautiful. Right. But is it because of their brain? Or not even that? I think it's just, I think it's internally. I think 
conventional beauty only only sort of attracts you for like the first couple moments or mm, it's mm-hmm. it gets very boring and eternal beauty is something that's constantly um surprising yeah and i've read like about lillian hellman you see photographs of her and then everyone said um from her entourage said you can't actually see what she looks like from photographs because her um she was so charismatic and wonderful that it completely animated mm. her physical appearance so you would have to see her i'm much more to interested you. in a person like that than i am with you know a, a model yeah. Obviously, though, that's obvious, mm. isn't yeah. it? Yeah, and it's funny too sometimes how like photographs. Some people can't be captured in photographs, and you're like, why is that? And it's because it's like their personality is so shiny, and that's actually what you're looking at when you see them. I had a, a big photograph in my office for years. It's a huge woman. She was sort of akimbo, kind of, but sort of squatting, gigantic. She was on a beach. I want to say Model, Lisette Model. Does that ring a bell? Mm-hmm. The photographer? Yeah. And I love that photograph. Mm-hmm. Like she's, most people would define her as the opposite of beautiful, but there's something about her, just her solid presence that was yeah. very appealing. Yeah, and also she's, like you see her and she's, she looks like a woman who's been loved and who's had her, like, her arms around people. I don't know. Mm-hmm. So there's something fascinating about bodies and the stories that they tell and the way we communicate with them. This is, uh, just getting back to lying here, by teaching me to lie about who I was, My dad instilled in me the notion that the differences were actually superficial. They were just outward trappings. And if you were to change coats with a rich person, then you would immediately become one. I think that's um, one of the reasons I always love Charles Dickens, because he always kind of dressed up his hobos. He always made the hobos like as aristocrats. And there was that sort of swapping of places and playing roles. I don't know why, but in uh, Lullabies for Little Criminals, uh, the protagonist, Baby, she's 12 or 13, mm-hmm. she reminded me of Paulette Goddard in uh, modern times. Mm-hmm. Now, your dad didn't remind me of... Char- well, that was a romantic interest with Charlie Chaplin. Mm-hmm. But uh, but uh, how does that fit? She's kind of making... She's, she's making the best out of the situation, always. Yeah, and it's funny um, you should reference those films because I, I do think um, Charlie Chaplin was like a really seminal influence for me in the way that... Um, even the way a lot of my female characters move was really influenced by films of that time, and, and um, especially Charlie Chaplin's and this whole, the way his characters kind of dance through their tragedies and um, yeah. make it into the loveliest kind of performance that has really affected, um, especially in the past few years, stuff that I've been writing, uh, like physical aesthetics of, of body movements. Has really been influenced by um, 
that sort of portrayal of poverty and the sort of beautiful like tiptoe it's like a world where everybody's on tiptoes so it's natural that you would make that association just because it's one of um the a big influence on my work just always um that's in my head I, and i watched um all those films I used to take them out in the library when i was a kid um i watched them there on their little like tvs back when you could watch um mm, go into mm-hmm. the tv room and mm-hmm. watch a movie uh, then there are, we'll bring in the, the clowns now. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, and again, I, I think Chaplin was a big fan of. Uh, is his name Marceline? It's like one of the, he, he was known as the greatest car, uh, the greatest clown in the world, right around the Marcel turn. Marcel? No, no he was no. later. I think his name is Marceline. Mm-hmm. Chaplin was influenced by him. Yeah, Chaplin was like a great sad clown. I've, and is is that what your character is in a way? She's making light of things that are pretty tragic. Like, for example, her mom, quote, dumps her when she's about, what, seven? Because mm-hmm. they take off from Montreal and mm-hmm. go down to the States. Mm-hmm. And then the, the mom just says, I'm sick of being a mother. I'm sending you back to Montreal to live with your dad. Is that always. you or is that the character? The, I mean, that one, that's me. But it's always like whenever you write about yourself, you kind of slip into persona. So yeah. it's never quite you. But yeah, I was always interested in sad clowns because they kind of, um, they did funny things and they went through these mundane actions. But within it, they always acknowledged the sadness of things too and just how um, sad life is and how no matter what we're doing, there's tragedy all around us and we all kind of carry these sad moments, but at the same time, we're allowed to perform joy and we're allowed to um, just make these kind of glorious exhibitions of our sadness in order to make other people laugh. So Mm. there's something that really always, just really touched me even as a child with the art of clowning. Yeah, because... uh... Again, although your your dad is trying, he's an he's an addict. He gets carted off to rehab. Oh, and baby, you're talking about yeah, baby, baby's yeah, definitely sorry, a I'm character. Mixed, I'm jumping yeah. around okay. here. I can't really help it. <laughs> and and baby has to go into uh, a hostel. You know, it's it's kind of fun and humorous for sure, but it's also really tragic what's happening to this little person yeah because I never um I just I guess that would that was my first book and I just never I was like well I'm gonna enter this world and speak of these types of stories like you don't want to pull any punches and then sort of sometimes with some writers it's like you'll have the main character spared the worst events and then you watch kind of tragedy befall those around them but I was more interested in um, my hero will be the one who experiences all the worst things, and then, nonetheless, my hero will be the one who kind of comes through it. I'm interested in the idea of grace and how children live in a state of grace, and there's this idea of things can, that can happen to a child to make them fall from grace, but I just wanted, um, in this book, it was like, baby, no matter what happens to her, she never falls from grace. And she's still existing, no matter what, in the state of grace. And I think I felt that way 
towards all children in that situation is that even though these sort of very adult-like things happen to them, like, they don't carry it, and it, they're not to blame, and they're still as innocent as a child that's, like, completely protected from the world. Yeah, there wasn't a, a moment, uh, like there was for me at least as a reader of Lolita, where, uh, I don't know exactly where it was, maybe about a third of the way in, I, I suddenly realized, wait a minute, this is... This is uh, this is rape. This is uh, not right. I suppose I was overwhelmed by the beauty, beauty and cleverness of the language in the novel. But there was there was a moment where it's almost you know suddenly enlightened that something's wrong here. I, I didn't get that in your novel, but there is that light and dark that's uh, at yeah. play. Yeah, I mean it's definitely. There's something a little, maybe more than a little wicked about being a writer. You kind of lure the reader into uncomfortable places and they don't actually realize they've gotten to that place until they're there and then sometimes they get very angry at you and throw your books against the wall. Mm. It's like you gave me all this beauty and sweetness and then I followed you like a child after the Pied Piper and you're <laughs> like, and they look around like, where am I? Why he brought me into this darkness? <laughs> right. I just wanted to escape. <laughs> because they have nothing of value, uh, this is poor people, they bequeath a value onto plain objects, and this in turn makes them cherished. It was not the object, but what it symbolized, what it was supposed to be. That was your, your dad being a hoarder, and the lesson is no about... <laughs> know about art history. <laughs> yeah, I'm kind of interested in, um, I mean, one of the things about my writing and aesthetic is to kind of, instead of just seeing something as ugly, like to embrace it and say, well, what if this was beautiful? And I, and I always like knickknacks just in the sense of the way people collect them and the people who are um, what we collect when we have no money to collect anything else and then how we kind of we're just like birds who are always trying to decorate our nests and I think it's just naturally part of being human that we try and create beautiful things even if it's like if we start collecting like plastic cups from <laughs> the gas station and then like arranging them in a pattern <laughs> so um but your I, dad I like had that these, tendency these store, that was the thing yeah. so many I, I interviewed uh Henry Hitchings is his name. He wrote a book called Browse about bookstores around the world. He edited it, and uh, it was kind of a nerdy conversation. But we both really agreed about how, uh, you know, I've got thousands of books, and I know the story of each one. I don't have a very great memory, but I know the story about each one of those books, mm -hmm. where I got it, why I got it, and he did the same sort of thing. He embellished, obviously, yeah. but you didn't care because it was so interesting to listen to the stories that what, yeah. he brought you these things, right? Yeah. These weird little things. Yeah, and so each one was like, uh, yeah, each one was a beautiful story. So, hmm. yeah, and I think that, yeah, we collect for all sorts of reasons. To Like you were saying, sometimes to like encapsulate a memory and they all have to do with stories so with my dad they were just like invented stories of where he had found this incredibly cheap object but obviously 
the fact that it's connected to an interesting story makes yeah. it valuable. And, it totally does, yeah. Because yeah. that's the, it's like the little, almost like a book that you put on the shelf. But mm. it's like a little object that contains that story. I mean, I think we collect partly to make sense of the world or to order, try and order the world mm. a little bit. I mean, that's possibly one reason. That's possible too. That's why I always get like uncomfortable in the country and I feel like if every tree had a little number on it then I would be okay but there's just like no order to this mm. crime does pay let's listen number eight as a child I was crazy about cheese so in the evenings my father would stop and select grocery stores to steal the most expensive cheese now for me reading that that's love <laughs> Even though breaking the law was not a great moral dilemma for him. Mm -hmm. So that's the question, is it? I'm trying to remember. Yeah, I'm trying to think of something. There's something in the Odyssey that connects with this. But it's like putting your house... You know, he was... Odysseus was putting his house in order when he came back home to his wife, Penelope. How did he do that? He slaughtered a whole bunch of suitors. Mm -hmm. But that's okay because he's putting his house in order. I don't know if that's a bit of too much of a leap here, but your dad is breaking the law by going and ripping off cheese because he knows you love it. Yeah. And that's okay. That makes ripping off the cheese okay. Does it or doesn't it? I think in this context, well, I mean, retrospectively, I mean, on an objective level, I would probably say no because it probably um, put him in peril of being arrested for stupid stuff. And not being a good parent, but... Um, and being away from you, yeah. Yeah, and just silliness. But, um, yeah, there was something nice in the the risk he took for that to please this sort of absolutely unnecessary taste that I had. The takeaway from this was that I should not settle for what was offered to me in life. I should want more than what my father could afford, and I was expected to find methods other than stealing to get them. Did he tell you not to steal? Yes. Okay. So do as I say, not as I do. Acquire what I acquire, but through other means, for the love of God. For him, the mark of a fine suit was that it had been stolen. <laughs> it's so true it would always be like this suit was stolen because it's the only way he thought one could acquire a really expensive suit which actually was probably true in his case so um, yeah that was like his if something was really he was really bragging about it it was like stolen yeah he, he really wanted to be like a big time gangster right yeah yeah that's what you admired the most? I think so, just because in his... I think it was probably the path that he was the best at or that he kind of um, was the one in which he had some success. And, you know, he was, like, born in the late 20s, so it was a time when, um, I don't know, being that sort of heyday of gangsters when the opportunities just opened up. And there was um, an open call for gangsters. <laughs> There's a great movie. There's a couple of movies I like. Uh, Miller's Crossing. I don't know if you've seen that. It's great. 
And uh, is it Bugsy where uh, Warren Beatty, he's in Vegas? There's a lot. Did you watch gangster movies with him? Yeah. Right in the middle of lesson 10, mm-hmm. full disclosure, he was an asshole. Mm-hmm. So what? All Because you really do sugarcoat all of this, but he was an asshole. I think it's okay to, it's okay to have a complicated feeling. I think it's okay to love parents who are assholes. I think in certain cultures, it's like a lot easier to embrace like a uh, flawed parent, but I think there's something weirdly like um, in the sort of modern like white patriarchal world where if you, like nobody kind of uh, like achieves the um, whatever our standards are for parenthood and uh, everyone just like hates and kind of disrespects their parents. It's just like a very strange sort of thing. So, I don't know. There's like a little give and take. We just like, we expect too much from our kids. We expect too much from our parents. And we all just need to just like chill out. <laughs> I don't know, it's not very, I'm not being particularly eloquent on that point. Well, you are not ashamed of yourself or the way your father was which was what made you an artist and not a criminal. Yeah. What does that mean? Yeah, maybe what I was getting at before, when you're ashamed of things, you just end up lying and hiding them, and then you end up staying in the kind of the world of secrecy, and the world of secrecy is sort of um, a prison within itself. But if um, when you become sort of open and honest about who you are and like with other people but also in this kind of larger understanding with yourself it kind of opens up your possibilities to the world I don't know there's something about secrets and shame that really um, it keeps you always hiding away from opportunities because you're always worried about being um, found out and being in places you're not supposed to be so it kind of um, like a counterfeit yeah, if I go there, they'll know that I'm like a counterfeit. But if you go in and it's like, hey, I'm a counterfeit. Look at the work on me. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone's a counterfeit. Yeah, exactly. Just uh, closing down here, um, and typically when I say that, we go for at least another half an hour. But I'll say it anyway. We're in the plateau. Are we still in the plateau? Yeah, Mar- Mar- Royal. Yeah, we're on the plateau. Physically? Yes. Okay, great. Because Michel Tremblay, mm-hmm. a great Quebec novelist, dramatist, was very influenced by this area and wrote about it for years, like mm-hmm. 50 plus years. Mordecai Retzler, his terrain as well. Mm-hmm. And you write about it. So what, what is it about this place? And how do you interact with those writers, if at all? I would definitely say, like, Michel Tremblay was a much bigger influence on me than Mordecai Richler. Yeah, I loved, like, Tremblay's novels and plays when I was young, and it was such an exciting feeling to be reading literature that was happening on um, the streets where I lived. And um, I don't know, there is definitely, I think, especially with the plateau, like it's an area that 
there's always like nooks and crannies in different cities that somehow do this or the people who live there do this but it is an area that romanticizes itself and they're sort of like when you live there and if you live here on the plateau there is like an effort and like one of the kind of things that go into living in the plateau is like yes you'll put your garbage out on such a night but also you will contribute to um the romanticization of this place and you'll like kind of live in a kind of fairy tale way and pretend it's more glamorous than it is so there's always um this is like very shabby chic uh nostalgia debout like bohemian quality to the plateau which i don't know i mean i just absolutely fell in love with as a kid i was rarely home as a kid i was always just out on the street but what is it what is it? Yeah. What's the appeal? Well, it's just... First of all, like, it's not... It doesn't have the same class divide. Because it used to be working class. Yeah. So it's now pretty, pretty trendy. Well, it has been for, what, the last ten years or more? Yeah, probably more. It's still, like... Um, it's still a wonderful place to live as an artist because their rent is like affordable. I think because there are just so many artists living in this neighborhood. Hmm. All kinds of artists. Yeah. Yeah. There's a vibrancy to it that you always feel whenever um, artists move into a place. Yeah, it's fun because I was reading a book um, by Richard Florida and he was saying that you know a city's healthy when you have like the artists show up and like move into places and it because artists have kind of this sense of like where creativity is happening and where it's a spot um for possibilities of new ideas and where you can just concentrate and like work on something new so when the artists leave the city is dying but when artists start to congregate it means that the city is thriving you're very interested in this area this neighborhood and, and it shows up in your novels a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's become like it, it's also the neighborhood in my novel is not quite the neighborhood that exists. It's kind of um, sort of almost magical realist version of Montreal. And each time in each novel that kind of builds, and it's like almost as if I'm doing through like my over like a sort of world building of a certain Montreal that is not quite this Montreal but it's like parallel why isn't it this Montreal because it's your because you made it up yeah and it's so um it's like Montreal is described you know as we're talking about an editorial process before but it's Montreal described to the details of the things drawing attention to the things that I like the most. So it's particularly how I see Montreal and the things that I find pretty about it. Like what? The things, just like the different details of buildings or um, the certain parks or whatever. Like it's, yeah, it's totally a montage of um, the pretty things hmm. that I like. So you've got a pretty filter on. Yeah, I mean, pretty kind of seems like trivial, but it's are like appealing, whatever it is that engages me. It kind of just fits into um, not my aesthetic. You like roses? I do. They kind of appear everywhere. You'd like them to appear everywhere? 
they do kind of appear everywhere in different stories and and um I mean part of it's kind of um pretty romantic it's romantic and uh yeah they kind of just appear more and more and it's almost like they're just like encompassing my work entirely I had one uh short story where um at the beginning of the story I slowly start describing like roses that are in certain places and but by the end um, they're just roses like that I describe everywhere so you have the sense of this um, throughout the story like a rose bush is actually growing around the mall so um, I just it's one of those associations that I have that it's um, like a clue that we're in now you're in the magical world of Heather or you are existing in the universe that's created by Heather because I like roses so there are just more roses everywhere and it's just like those kind of hints and it's like and I also always I always like the way that artists kind of play with motifs and at some point I was like well it would be interesting to be able to write and have those motifs as well and same thing I mean you can do it in poetry where you have like recurring images so I was interested in doing that in um, prose can and Cezanne I, paint the same mountain about a million times yeah, and just, yeah, so I wanted that almost. Just as your sort of, that's yeah. your logo, your yeah. mark, your. <laughs> <laughs> just finally then, your memoir. Mm-hmm. You're not too young to write a memoir. Why do you feel like writing that now? I think in a way I was just curious what the process would be, and I was interested in the, in the pushback that the book would give me. I don't know, it was a challenge because I always see working with um, different books as a kind of relationship and some books are just like more giving than others and I kind of feel like I've been really getting along with fiction and uh, I understand like uh, I'm good in that relationship now and I know how to get a a novel to like me back. Um, So I was just kind of, part of me was just interested in if I could like I was talking about some traumatic events in my childhood if I could how they would like defy me and how I would find a way to put all that in words and I'm not entirely sure I will be able to write it but I'm just kind of I was curious to open that like Pandora's box and see see if it could be done yeah you're way more I would think I mean, with a novel, you can say, that oh, that's not me. Yeah. But uh, if you do call it a memoir, then uh, you're going to be vulnerable, I suppose. Like, you're, you're talking about, if I hear you correctly, events that were shattering. Mm-hmm. Is it sort of like public therapy? That, that might happen if you take the thing on the road to different festivals, no? I suppose. We're not that it that. has to be honest, though, yeah. of course. <laughs> Yeah, I never think of the end product, but um, yeah, it's just like a process thing, and I think it was always, it's also um, been in my mind as like something that I can never really actually talk about or articulate, and then I was kind of wondering if I could find words wherein to sort of um, Mm -hmm. capture the beast. Yeah. And then what kind of, what an actual literary creative fiction kind of using all those techniques like what that would look like if it, you kind of put those together yeah because you can't lie because yeah. 
James Frey tried lying in his memoir, and look what happened to him. Because there's kind of a pact between yeah. the uh, reader and the author. Yeah. You call it that, well, you better tell the damn truth. There is some level of fabrication just in the way you kind of choose which events to put mm-hmm. in, as we were talking about, because, you know, anyway, it's going to kind of create a different picture. But, yeah, I think memoirs are an important genre because people look to them as these sort of intimate narratives about someone else's life to see how they've lived it and people take all sorts of clues and they so, look for honesty yeah really, and they, they look do. they really look for honesty because you want to read and they want to learn so yeah because yeah. there's um especially if you're having difficult experience you want to read how someone else kind of went through that it makes you not feel alone so to lie about it is um yeah it'd be just like the ultimate it's too much of a betrayal but you said betrayal's okay uh, if she's not alone, so. <laughs> I suppose, but... Um, I'm just using your words <laughs> against you, I'm sorry. You're twisting my words. Yeah. Um, anything else you want to say to your readers, or to me? No, I think I'm good. Oh, uh, before, at some point I said, for the love of God, maybe you should cut that out, because it's a swear, but it's up to you. boy you sound like you were raised in a really straight-laced environment yeah (laughs) (laughs) well thank you so much for uh for taking the time to genuinely interact with me about your work it was a real pleasure thank you I've been speaking to Heather O'Neill, who is the author, most recently, of Wisdom in Nonsense, Invaluable Lessons from My Father, published by the University of Alberta Press. You've been listening to the Bibliophile Podcast. My name is Nigel Beale.